0: Scrapple fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Match of the Week. An episode within the larger framework of Let Me Tell You Something, where your co-host Lorcan Mullen and your other co-host...
1: Simon Cross.
0: ...take it in turns to discuss a match that they're picking. The odd number ones are mine, the even number ones are Simon's. So Simon gets the pick, and Simon, tell everyone what
1: match, or arguably matches, you've picked for us today. You know... Like when you were a kid and you went out on like a holiday in Britain, and they did those like Kellogg multi packs, where it was all loads of little boxes of cereal. What I want you to imagine, dear listener, is that, but within a match.
0: I don't know if I would fully agree with that uh, metaphor because when you pour that bowl's worth of cereal out, your first reaction is, "The hell, that's a full bowl of cereal." <laughs>
1: Yes, a pain I am all too familiar with. But this is certainly full on, and it is certainly a match taking place on the 3rd of August 1991 in Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, as it's a two-out-of-three-falls affair between Cactus Jack and Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, with Eddie Gilbert's career on the line.
0: Well, you say that it's two-out-of-three-falls, but it really is three separate matches that take place across what seems like it was a very long card, given the comments from the announcer towards the end of the third match.
1: I don't know why he thought that was okay to say. Yeah,
0: we'll get get into that. But the uh, prototypical three stages of hell match, essentially, is what we're experiencing. The show opened with Cactus Jack and Eddie Gilbert taking part in a Falls Count Anywhere match. At the midway point, they took part in a stretcher match, and giving... A bit away, the third and final fall was a steel cage confrontation that closed the show. So, Simon, what was it that made you choose this event anyway? These matches, this
1: contest. Casting our minds back to when we started our list, I had heard the name Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, but I had not seen any Hot Stuff Eddie Gilberts. I wanted to see some Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. And this match, I believe in one of our planning discussions, you called this like the forebearer of ECW itself. Well, this takes place in Philadelphia, and there even
0: seem to be some ancillary members of ECW on display. I'm sure that at least two of the referees in this were ECW referee mainstays. can't remember what their names were, I think one of them might have been John Finnegan, might be wrong there. And the ring announcer, at the very least, looked a lot like Todd Gordon, who would go on to be the the owner and promoter of ECW from around nineteen from from when it started to nineteen ninety six or ninety five when um, there was a whole load of scandal going on with him and and uh, Paul Heyman that we won't bother getting mm, into here, okay. but it could be for another time. It's funny as well, because this is... Eddie Gilbert and Cactus Jack were the two of the last figures... Well, more so Cactus Jack, actually, to be fair, than Eddie Gilbert. But Cactus Jack was one of the last figures to make some sort of living, some sort of burgeoning success in what was left of a territory system when he started in 85, 86. He had stints in Texas and in Tennessee the Memphis Territories and a few other places before settling in with WCW in 1990. And then he left WCW. Well, he joined it in '89, I think, maybe. But he left it soon after. So this is in between two stints at WCW. As you were saying, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert was... Started in wrestling when he was, like, eight, uh, barely out of high school. Or barely, was like... I think he went to a show instead of going to his high school graduation. So... <laughs> I read up on his such a wrestler. Um, I read up on his uh, Wrestling Observer obituary back in nineteen ninety-five when he died at the age of thirty-three. And he really he was a third generation wrestler actually. Uh, but he's such a carny that his grandfather was a wrestler on the carnival circuit. You know, How? The original essentially what pro wrestling was born from. And his dad, he somewhat idolized, and his brother as well was also a wrestler from the territory system. But more than anything he idolised Jerry Lawler and he wanted to do what Jerry Lawler did which was get involved as a booker as quickly as possible. Oh, Eddie Gilbert okay. was always seen as this very intelligent, very creative mind. He actually was a photographer with Jim Cornette back in the day. Him and Jim Cornette grew up around the same area in, in Tennessee and would take photos of the Memphis shows and everything. And he was thought of as a really good writer and someone, said, someone in the obituary, it might have been Jim Cornette, said he thought he was going to become a journalist, not a... Not a wrestler because of how good right. he was at writing. Oh, okay. So he was always a very inventive mind, but I think there's a lot of a lot of things set him back. One was he was not that tall; he's under six foot. So he tried to overcompensate that by taking a lot of steroids. Uh, he was all obsessed with his weight and and keeping muscle mass going to try and at least look credible against much taller wrestlers. He was also because he grew up in the carny wrestling business. He also was sort of taught to not trust anyone. And so Eddie Gilbert, more than anything, more than being seen as a great creative mind, more than being seen as a good, solid, like, top-line wrestler for territory systems, he was known as one of the great bridge-burners of wrestling. Everywhere that he left, he left on bad terms, basically. Oh. So it's no surprise that when he did die, he was in Puerto Rico. <laughs> no. Oh a final calling spot for a wrestler that can't get work most other places. Yeah. And he was a bit of a visionary. He and he, he jumped around from place to place. He was part of the booking committee in WCW, along with people like Jim Cornette and Dusty Rhodes. He was given the book in the UWF under Bill Watts towards the end of that promotions run before it got merged with Jim Crockett Promotions. He, he was just a very smart guy, uh, but he was also very paranoid. Would always... Like we say, burn bridges and had a combination of steroid abuse and pill addictions that some might attribute to a a car crash he suffered in 1983 that really got him badly hurt. I actually knew of Eddie Gilbert's... Well, I'll go back on where I originally the name from, but I actually remember watching some Eddie Gilbert when WWF was super big on telly. They even on Sky Digital, I believe, days, they would show old WWF wrestling from 1982, and their TV show back then was literally just squash matches. It was hosted by Vincent Mann and Pat Patterson, and it would just be squash matches for the most part. So it'd be like prototypical superstars of wrestling, or all-American wrestling. That might have been what it was called, actually. And Eddie Gilbert was basically the perennial jobber of that era, along with Kurt Hennig. Like oh, okay. they would lose all the all the matches on the show. They would be like regulars on the screen for most of that run. I was that I was watching it on TV. And the other way I knew of Eddie Gilbert was partly through the Cactus Jack matches, because when you're young and you just curious and consume everything, and and sometimes you get stuff from like uncles or aunts who were like, oh, I know he likes wrestling, so I'll give him this, or, you know. Yeah. Like a WCW video or something. I just remember getting this big, thick, A4-sized book that did wrestler profiles. And, like, every wrestler would get four pages. they get a, a splash page. Next to there would be a one page of, like, a biography of them. And then two pages of them in action. And it's clear third-party stuff. The quality of the picture is mm. not your WWF ma- magazine glossy stuff. So it's like house shows under glaring hot lights. It's not a very professional setup. And some of them are from grimy, gritty shows. I remember seeing like a photo of Abdullah the Butcher holding the Sheik in a in a sleeper hold, and they both got blood pouring down their faces. And another one I remember, because it was Cactus Jack, I believe. There might have been one for Eddie Gilbert, but I know there was one for Cactus Jack. And this would have been ninety-two that this came out. I know that because Ric Flair was in WWF at the time, and there were photos of them, and probably from this show because they're they're in a steel cage and they're fighting outside the ring, and they've both just utterly covered in blood. And it's like the most nasty-looking, violent matches. And so I always remembered the name from those pictures and this guy yeah. that was having this crazy feud with Cactus Jack that seemed even more extreme than anything that I was seeing him do in WCW, because the WCW stuff wasn't involving blood. So that name stuck, and then when I started reading about the history of WWF, uh, a re- history of wrestling in like your PowerSlam magazines and ECW, they would reference tri-state wrestling as essentially the precursor to ECW, Joel Goodhart, the promoter of this thing, and then being inherited by Todd Gordon, who turned it into Eastern Championship Wrestling, that then became Extreme Championship Wrestling in '94. Yeah, and there is a clear step from one end to the you know from one to the other. And Eddie Gilbert was the booker of Eastern Championship Wrestling, along with Paul Heyman. That he oh, and Paul okay. Heyman had a long-standing partnership. They booked together in the Alabama territory, which was the first place that Paul Heyman had a hand in booking in 1988. And so their their paths would very often be together. And then, but then, as is Eddie's way, paranoia sets in. And by late '93, he's out there, and Paul Heyman's the sole booker of ECW and pushes it forward. But it's obvious that if Eddie Gilbert could have kept it straight, then he would have probably been very successful in production, like behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera. But he just always had these obsessions, and and his personality was such that it was all, almost always going to self-destruct. Like a he lot was of, on unfortunate... a of
1: nothing in some yeah. senses. he, he was the, he was his own biggest obstacle.
0: Yeah, yeah, essentially, and you can see so much of Jerry Lawler in this—the way that he moves around in the ring, the way that he throws punches. He can—you can get the sense that he could probably do what Jerry Lawler did, which is be both the the most cowardly, slimiest heel, or the most eager, go-getting babyface. Yeah, he can do both ends of the spectrum so well.
1: He has presence, despite his like. I mean, yes, it's like for the time, it is a lack of height like Cactus looks quite imposing against him and like Cactus Jack never really had to use his height to be an imposing person
0: it does well you say that but it also helps when you're six foot four
1: yeah he's very good at like as I say drawing you in and as you watch him throughout the matches even in moments where you can't exactly see him you can tell that Mm. uh, he's holding the audience squarely in the palm of his hand just from the body language of Mm. the people even in the back of the shop, everyone's glued to him. Mainly because mm. they're in the crowd and there's probably an element yeah. of fear. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, this <laughs> is, yeah.
1: Number. You think about it, though, the fighting in the
0: crowd element of it is probably what made it so new and original. And it seemed like that was the thing with ECW that then WWF really successfully replicated with the Steve Austin main event formats. Mm. That so often it goes into a crowd and it gives that sense of pandemonium and anything can happen and also plays up to how rabid the crowds are were at that point. The problem with this show is that there's literally only one camera that can't see what the bloody hell they're doing.
1: Yeah, the first four <laughs> suffers a lot because of that. Um, Especially the bits ringside, because it's the opposite of the hard cam. Mm. So all we're seeing is, like, torsos bob up and down.
0: Tops of heads and suddenly chairs coming crashing down on the more giant bins being Mm. dumped on them
1: (laughs) it has an element of being helpful to like getting across like the chaos but like it's one of those like silver lining things because Mm. you'd rather have had the second camera around well i think what's also
0: curious about this is this is maybe the start of the Tade traping era really starting to take off i mean it existed in the 80s with figures like jim Cornette being a key part of them yeah but this is one where it's almost the event itself is what brings the name to people's attention they're not they're not looking for it because it's like that territory like TWA has no intrinsic name value that goes with the the Memphis territories or the Dallas territories or the you know any any of the other territories this is just an independent show but increasingly as we're going into 1991 there are no territories at this point essentially it's just Memphis and that's about it, really. Yeah. That's it. It's, you, you've got Memphis, then you've got WWF and WCW, and then just a big void of independence shows around the place, and so things need to start getting a reputation. And the way that they do that is by going down that bloody, violent end of it. That's been before the Funks and, and, and everyone else, and again, the Funks were people that, that Eddie Gilbert's, I think his, his dad also idolised Dory Funk Senior, so the Funks were also great inspirations for the Gilberts. And Eddie okay. Gilbert, and you can also, I mean, when when people talk about the origins of hardcore wrestling, as it were, they very often will refer to the concession stand brawl, which again came from the Memphis territory. Which yeah, answers. and Eddie Gilbert was part of one of those concession stand brawls where he teamed up with a pre Rock and Roll Express Ricky Morton and faced off against coming into Japan on their All Japan learning excursion at Sushi Onita. Wow. And Masanobu
1: Fushi. Oh, baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Aww. from that that, and that was in 1981. So that's again they're taking that inspiration from the original concession stand brawl in 1979 involving uh, Wayne Ferris and uh, Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and another person I can't remember. And this one again, it became like a go-to gimmick that they would go to every once in a while. And then the concession stamp brawl then almost becomes the in house style of what ECW and and eventually hardcore wrestling becomes. So Eddie Gilbert's very much on the on the um, cutting edge of these things, and Cactus Jack, of course, becomes a key figure in the rising and profile of ECW as well when he gets loaned out from WCW to take on Sabu in their matches. Okay. Uh, yes. And- He famously spits on the WCW tag team title. It's leaning into the start of like dream matches because obviously Cactus Jack builds its reputation. I remember Cactus Jack writing about this in his original book and around that time Dave Meltzer was saying like Cactus Jack's the best kept secret in pro wrestling when he was doing these things in the the smaller territories and independent scenes. And so he went to WCW, didn't really work out in the mid card. She was in that Chamber of Horrors match. Don't know if you remember that. (laughs) <laughs> but it just wasn't for him at that point. was he, he you
1: where he lost his ear as well?
0: Yes, that was in the second run in 93 against Vader. Doing the uh, getting caught in the rope spot, which he tries to do here in the steel cage match and doesn't manage to do it. Eddie Gilbert kind of took it where it was and, and Cactus Jack pushed it even further afterwards in the in the mid-90s, I suppose. And then that leads to him going to Japan where Atsushi Onita took elements of that and then turned it into the you know, the weapons and the barbed wire and Cactus Jack goes to IWA and becomes King of the death matches, and it all comes, you know, Full back circle, around to it. And, kind of. I mean, one of the big spots in this match, the one that's really the turning point when Eddie Gilbert makes his comeback in the stretcher match after losing the Falls Count Anywhere match is to smash a bottle over Cactus Jack's head. And, and I then to him, take the broken bottle
1: know, and like, sort of rake it across his yeah. forehead as well.
0: And that's levels of violence that not a lot of people are used to. Obviously, you've got barbed wire, but bottles and everything. And you know, I don't think my guess is they weren't gimmicks, because I remember when Sabu beat Cactus Jack by smashing his head with a bottle, it took them like three attempts to break it.
1: Jesus.
0: (laughs) Which just makes it worse, ultimately. Oh,
1: man. It's a jarring thing. Obviously, you see it a lot in like westerns, like all those like old-timey like bar fight scenes you see in movies so it's not relatable in the same way that fun tax are but it's like a commonly held and understood maneuver if that makes sense. even when
0: even when it's clearly a gimmick sugar glass yeah. it still makes a really impressive image and look you know even when it's someone being thrown through a glass window as was supposed to look like for Shane McMahon Kurt Angle, (laughs) which is another example of that. It's funny how it all just eventually goes into the mainstream. You know, Cactus Jack was the one that really brought Barbed Wire into the WWF. First, briefly, with the New Age Outlaws feud, and then ultimately with the Triple H feud. Yeah, And that's also the funny thing about Cactus Jack, I thought. What I loved when he came back with that gimmick in 2000 to take on Triple H was that that was finally getting to see Mick Foley as the shit kicker. Because so much with mankind and his reputation, I suppose, from the King of the Death matches and everything, was that this was a guy that could take a sickening amount of abuse and hurt himself. Yeah. But the whole idea with Cactus Jack as well, especially when he was a heel, was that he was this monstrous figure that would hurt you so badly and drag these. Virtuous, good, goody goodies like Sting and Ricky Steamboat into the dirty, miry world of violence that he gives them, and that he enjoys inflicting pain on people. And that Mm. his—I remember the the whole thing with Cactus Jack in WCW was that his specialty was outside of the ring. Like in the ring, he might get outworked, but when it went outside of the ring, you were in his domain. He helped popularize the false count anywhere gimmick as well. What's also funny as well, especially with the stretcher matches, you're seeing the old 70s 80s standard gimmicks but with the force count anywhere the more modern versions like to be fair the force count anywhere was seen as part of the texas death match yeah which was yeah where the, and those matches could go on for ages and ages but it was like you could get pinned anywhere but then you also had a standing a 10 count to stand up and the funks would love to book those in amarillo and they were saying that some of those matches would go on for like 2 hours uh, because of how no. it was structured <laughs> But you got the false count anywhere match, so I guess that's a version of the Texas Death Match that then becomes a, a mainstay in ECW, and then becomes like the k- byword for a hardcore match. becomes a false count anywhere match with weapons. Yeah. So really, again, the first fall is more like a like a, like the prototype of the WWF hardcore matches you'd see where they go into the crowd or maybe even go backstage and they just hit each other with weapons forever, how long until one hits the decisive one. blow and wins? Yeah, it. in like
1: increasingly inventive ways and yeah. what have you.
0: Yeah, one match we should definitely do for Match of the Week in this was the uh, Road Dog Al Snow hardcore title match on Raw. I remember really liking that match. And Road Dog had a fun little run for a couple of months with the hardcore title. It was almost like a television title where he was defending it against random people every Raw in okay. inventive ways. Because it's the early stage as well, I don't think there's as much of a knowledge of the structure, and so it does become a bit... I don't want to say loosey-goosey or absent-minded. And also, again, it's because you're looking at it from a distance anyway, from a hard cam, let alone an obscured view on a very shitty quality picture. There's a
1: sense of manufactured carnage we see with, like, all these spots or someone going through a sugar glass window, for example. But with this, it's sort of like the carnage enhances it, if that makes sense. You don't think it's intended? Not to the extent that we get it. If that I'm makes not quite sense. sure I understand what you mean. <sighs> Okay, carnage is maybe the wrong word, like disorganisation. Yeah, I agree with
0: that. There is a sense of improvisation, just do whatever's available. They wouldn't have a kitchen sink because that would be a joke and it would be a predetermined spot to bring a kitchen sink in. So it's a
1: metaphorical kitchen sink. Mm, and like with the food tray and stuff. Well, it's always, again, that, it's always maybe- that
0: idea of like working it out in the ring and not doing it too planned ahead of time. Which yeah, be all, maybe because uh, it's just the
1: one camera as well. Like There's just a visual yeah. element of like chaos in it which you wouldn't get from a hardcore match on Raw which is like shot and produced yeah I guess several cameras and what have you
0: yeah well they have to work that to like a time limit you know they'll have been told how many minutes they've got to work it so they have to know exactly where to be yeah they'll be planned out spots and, and places where weapons need to be for them to do those spots backstage so I agree with you there. It's more mapped out for TV, whereas this was like, you say, just hit whatever's n- nearby. But I think because of that, he struggled with the story flow. And it does feel a lot like two heels fighting each other. I mean, it seems like Mick F- Cactus Jack is the baby face. Mm. In that he has sort of like a fiery baby face opening. And then when he makes his big dramatic heroic comeback in the third fall, he does that. But... There's definitely no, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, not the smiling, really... happy-go-lucky baby face. It's just this is the wild brawler that we like, and that's the wild brawler that we hate. But yeah. they're both trying to kill each other. Yeah, in it's in not really ways. until uh,
1: Gilbert's <laughs> promo inside the cage that it's truly established who we're. Yeah, well, the
0: cheering the commentator says there's fans for both people in the ring, but again, it's funny because the crowd doesn't quite know what to do. Nowadays, Mm. it'd be, let's go, Cactus, let's go, Gilbert. But I think there's just almost like a... Because it was something different. There was a bit of an awe to it. And, I mean, what he says at the end is like... He basically said people have walked out and people are saying stop the match because they can't take it anymore in the crowd. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's like, uh, for the third thought, it's like, oh, the fact that uh, there are still some fans here. Like, what? uh,
0: I don't know. It must have been going, like, after midnight or something yeah and that's why they said the they said but it's just you know they're not very well very well managed but that was what i was saying about the early days of it being something that was being taped traded and like trying to cause a buzz around it when you've got no history behind the cwa name he says early on that there's like members of the media there he's name dropping people from pro wrestling illustrators yes and pro wrestling torch and saying there's japanese photographers So it's almost like, you know, when when AEW started up and they were doing this whole, doing the media rounds and trying to get all the podcasts and everyone to follow them Mm. and and give them access. This is like the early version of that. This is them actively having to seek out the tape traders to give them something they want, which eventually becomes the business model for ECW and also Ring of Honor and all the other independent scenes, really, of the late 90s, early 2000s.
1: It's a real, like, look-at-me nature, which you get within the match itself because of how much crowd into interla- involvement there is
0: well when you think what's happening in 1991 on wwf hulk hogan and sergeant slaughter and ultimate warrior and they are going down a more edgy path in a way in, in some of those areas but it's still relatively cartoony credentity at this mm. point so there is that clear and like we say there is Basically, next to no territory outside of memphis that's still operating by this point i think dallas would have collapsed in 90 awa would have died in 90 everywhere else would have been bought up so you know there's this huge void and what they can do is they can say well we can't give you the best looking product very clearly but we can give you the most violent, the wildest thing you could possibly see and that is what they're doing again the while the crowd is quiet i don't think it's because they're bored i think it's because they're shocked obviously in philadelphia there's obviously a a reputation for some bloodthirst and that is why it does become the the foundation for ecw in 93 and again that tape trading knowledge and, and a more knowledgeable dirt sheet reading audience starting to build up it's not the full thing yet but you can
1: understand why in 1991 if you watched it this would blow your mind yeah yeah especially when as you say you compare it to what the mainstream was putting out at the time. In terms of blood fierceness you get that in spades. Like, there's a great moment, very start of the second fall, when, like, Gilbert's bandages are exposed. Cactus actually starts biting his cut. I do like how, in
0: the first fall, it's Gilbert that loses after taking these big bumps. Well, it's huge bumps when you consider it. He goes for a pile driver in the ring. Cactus back drops him all the way to the outside, and then does a clothesline off the um, apron. I would have thought that would have been a good place for him to do his second rope elbow drop and pin him from there. Because it's on the opposite side of the hard cam, we literally can't see the pinfall going. But they did take that into account, to be fair, in that the ring announcer counts along with the referee, so that you can tell if it's a a pinfall or not. And then when the stretcher match starts, Eddie Gilbert doesn't come out at first. And it's actually Cactus Jack, again, a sign that sort of he's the heel still in this story. The Cactus Jack drags him out, whereas in the third one, Eddie Gilbert's just hoping he never does come out. And at first they're saying the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission will not sanction him to come out. But Cactus just goes to hell with this and then goes
1: in and fights him in the cage. Cactus gets in the cage and then you just hear the guy go, Ah, okay, it's a match. Oh, and that moment of Cactus gets drop-kicked off the top of the cage and then the crowd are like, Huh? Hmm.
0: I've already said my issues with the escaping the cage. Stipulation, not entirely making sense. You can listen to that in our Steel Cage episode of uh, Let Me Tell You Something. Again, that's one of the reasons why they had to divide it over the whole show. Yeah. Because, you know, nowadays when they do the three stages of hell, the the Steel Cage or the cell or whatever it is that would make the third fall would be descended from the rafters, but they have to set it all up. Which again, very often that's probably one of the reasons why it was very late by the end of it. Because oftentimes the setting up of the cage can take... 20-30 20-30 minutes if you don't get it although this wasn't the most impressive cage as far as size or, or anything goes but you know saying that when you think though about the height of where cactus came was coming from to the outside that fall is not a million miles from being as dangerous as it's two most famous falls really from the south i mean there's a reason he walks the way he does now He he accepts that I think the fact that he's still mentally as sharp as he is is yeah. an amazing testament. But in this, we're seeing him being smashed over the head with a bottle and taking chair shots to the head, it would seem. And even that weird sort of flare flip he does in the corner towards the end of the match, and he gets his foot caught at the top of the
1: cage. Yeah, do you reckon he put that in because he couldn't get trapped in the ropes?
0: Maybe, maybe. But I think it was probably just a planned spot still. I think he was trying to do, he likes those being trapped spots and he probably came up with that after the you know to go with the getting the head caught in the rope spot as well and it's a good moment of vulnerability or you know come up it's, it's always very uh, arresting visual the way he gets trapped in those ropes yeah
1: he's either too excessive for himself like there's one point where he charges Gilbert Gilbert moves out the way and he just basically like plants himself into the wall of the cage mm. or when someone like cheats against him when Doug turns up like, mm. he's very well protected as a character in this match.
0: Yeah. The stretcher match is a funny gimmick that I always heard for years and never really saw that much of. It's made a few appearances in the WWE. I think Batista and Shawn Michaels had yeah. one. Also got merged with the ambulance match as well. Brock Lesnar and The Big Show had one, where Brock ended up carrying him on a forklift over the, uh, over the finishing line, essentially, which is always a funny way of doing it but with this one it is just beating him to the point that he has to be carried out of the ring and he's beating him
1: and he's beating him with the steps as he's being carried out of the ring by the referees (laughs) the commentator says oh he's got to be taken to the backstage area he's not at the backstage area by the time the commentator goes well gilbert's got this one mainly because gilbert is as you say pounding on him still with it it's that big metal stool he's just
0: jamming into him and it's also that was around the time he got the mic and was saying, "I'm gonna kill him," literally saying, "I'm gonna kill Captain yeah. Jack." <laughs> you would have thought a quit match could have worked in that environment, but I think the problem with that is that needs a definitive ending. I mean, the fact that after all this, it ends on a no contest is such an old school carny. You mm. know, it was, and that was we're coming to a time where that just wasn't acceptable anymore. And that was one of the things actually with ECW. To be fair to them, they almost never book non-finishes. There could be 15,000 different people getting involved in the match, but someone's shoulders were pinned for a three count almost all yeah. the time. There were next to no disqualification or count-out finishes in ECW, especially after 94 and the rebranding of Extreme Championship Wrestling.
1: It's a great way of protecting both characters, but obviously they had like Gilbert's retirement on the line, so... They didn't want to pull the trigger on that. So I can understand why it's a scrappy finish. But in that time, loads of feuds would never have blow-off angles, especially yeah. when
0: they're people like Eddie Gilbert that will often... Like I said, when he would burn bridges, very often he would leave promotions whilst they're champion. Oh, God. <laughs> so that was also a problem that you'd have. That Again, that paranoia of needing to always stay strong. You know, Again, another person I think he was a big fan of was Bruiser Brody, who was always, always... Making sure he was not made to look the fool.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a limit to protecting your character. It can get you in some sticky situations. And at the end of the day, you have to work with people to make money in this business. It's not an individual a game, despite the fact your success is m- mostly based on yourself. My guess is he must have dreamed of
0: getting his own territory that he could run and own and operate so he could never... Fall out with himself, but obviously that never happened. And he could have probably still found a way to fall out with himself
1: by the sounds of it. I could start writing a Buddhist monastery.
0: So it's obvious that this is a, a match of two creative minds looking to do something different and new within what they've grown up on. Eddie Gilbert took it a certain way, and, and then Cactus Jack almost picks up the baton at this point and goes elsewhere, as does Tommy Dream with Paul Heyman and, and so on and so on. So if you were to say what is what became hardcore wrestling in the 90 in late 98 got branded as hardcore wrestling officially i suppose in ecw as well it's the concession stand brawls and it's this match and with Jap- japan it's the atsushi onita barbed wire stuff and everything it's it's one that you like it feels like it's almost required viewing but it's not going to be enjoyable but it's a way of understanding no. where, you, where you're coming from if it was filmed literally like the ECW style with a hard cam and a second camera that follows it, so you can literally see Cactus Jack missing with that elbow off the second rope, which is why he's suddenly losing like in the in the yeah. uh, stretcher match, in the second match, rather than just suddenly seeming to not make any... Because, again, the commentator doesn't see. So the commentator's assuming he hits it. But then the next thing you see... I mean, there are a few jumps, so you're missing a, we're missing a bit of footage here and there. Again, I wonder if it's because it's clearly being filmed on just a shoddy camcorder. Maybe they didn't have enough tape and they were just having to...
1: <laughs> Quick, pop the next one in! Pop the next one in! So
0: it's an artifact.
1: Yeah, it, it's a relic. It's a plot point on a timeline.
0: But ECW would do this with all their home shows as well, that it would be a single camera filming it all. But the wise thing they did was that the hard cam wasn't the setup cam; it was literally a, a handheld one. Very often, uh, Rob Feinstein that would be operating it during the show, or or oh, Gabe okay. Sapolsky, and they would film the action like from a from the ringside area. And they would sell those tapes at shows as well. Uh, it would be good to watch some other Eddie Gilbert stuff, maybe within other territories. He was a key figure in uh, Sting's early stages and Rick Steiner. When they were both debuting, he was part of a faction with Eddie Gilbert in the UWF in 87, and Eddie Gilbert was apparently like a year ahead of everyone else saying Sting is going to be the next big star of wrestling. It didn't take that long for other people to cotton onto it, but he was the first one to think it. Apparently, uh, is there anything else you want to add? Are you happy that you picked this one? Do you think, in hindsight, you sh- you wish you'd gone for something different or?
1: No, no, I'm happy I picked it because of its historical importance. But as as, I, as you say, it's required viewing, but it it has ha- hasn't aged well. Well,
0: I just I think as much of that is down to uh, the filming equipment <laughs> that's made yeah. it not age well. If we'd have had a handheld camera following the action all over the place, and more of a sense of what the crowd was like and everything, we would know better. We, we might have enjoyed it more. It's like having an obstructive view at a theatre. You know, it's cheaper seats, but, you know, it's not, you got a pillar in front of you. <laughs> but anyway, if people can talk to you, Simon, about wrestling matches or pillars or anything else like that, what can they do to get in touch with
1: Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm so known as Simon Cross Free, Free for the number of falls in this match. Not all of them are winners. My name is Lorcan, and that's L O R C A N M U
0: W L A N. That are the first two letters of anywhere in falls count anywhere. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd, if you're putting at gmail.com at the end of the name, Lorca Mullen, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. If you fancy throwing us a few pennies so that we can afford the camcorder equipment of that era, because it would only cost us a few pennies, <laughs> then by all means, get onto our patreon.com slash lmtyspod and put your name down and a bit of extra cash towards your wrestling podcasts. Next week, assuming there are no more five-star matches in the interim from Dave Meltzer, we'll be on my pick for match of the week. And I am also going to one of the only territories that existed in this 90s era. It's going to be our first trip to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Woo! But it's also going to be one of the inter-promotional matches that Smoky Mountain Wrestling had when Jim Cornette had his relationship with the WWF. It's going to be Buddy Landell the other nature boy of the 80s and 90s, challenging for the WWF Intercontinental Championship that is held by the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. Now. So it'll be a WWF title being defended on a non-WWF show. But until then, there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next one.